Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the United States and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned in to Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halstead, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a program about New York City's extraordinary neighborhoods and their amazing history. On most programs, like this one, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but also its current vibe, its energy and texture, what makes the neighborhood special and the people who were part of the neighborhood. And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. Sometimes I host a show about an interesting part of the city or theme about New York and its history that's not about one particular neighborhood. I might talk about one of our fine urban parks or a famous bridge, as I was just talking with uh, my first guest about. The city in an age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre, I am going to do a show about punk one day, uh, or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. And each show is available on archive and podcasts the day after the show airs. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. That's it, for them. Tonight we're going to showcase one of the city's newest neighborhoods, Battery Park City, which, interestingly enough, is adjacent to the city's oldest neighborhood, which is now the Financial District. My first guest is a regular at Rediscovering New York. It's Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history and for over 40 years has been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews through her private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. Uh, And her website is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce has published two guidebooks, From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan, and From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. Joyce has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City, and her article, Learning on Foot, Walking Tours of New York City, appeared in the Parents League 2000 Review. And it's with great pleasure that we welcome Joyce Gold back to Rediscovering New York. Welcome back, Joyce. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, Some of our listeners know about your personal history, but we, as our listenership has been growing, and it has been growing, uh, I'm sure we have people who are listening now who have not heard you before. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're not originally from New York City. I am from a small town in Pennsylvania. I was born in Hazleton, PA, and it was a wonderful place to be a kid. You could walk around by yourself <clears throat> and explore, which was always a lot of fun. But I moved to New York with my family. When I was in the ninth grade, I moved to Queens in New York City, and um, I've been enjoying the city ever since. You know, one question I always like to ask people who do what you do uh, is how did you get into the business of, I'm going to call it illuminating and entertaining New Yorkers about our neighborhoods and their history. You don't just take people around on walks. You really illuminate it and bring it to life. Well, I was working on Wall Street uh, 40-some years ago at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and uh, computers really weren't me too much, but I just happened to browse through what was then the oldest bookstore in the city, not around anymore, Mendoza's on Ann Street. Some of your listeners may remember that great place. And I just picked up a 100-year-old book about New York 100 years before that. 
And it was a wonderful mental activity for me to pass the street coming from the subway to my office and imagine what it looked like after I read the book and many other books since then uh, in 1600 and 1700 and 1800. And I enjoyed imagining uh, different aspects of what was a city that was always changing very quickly. So it really improved my day, and I thought that other New Yorkers were missing out on a lot by not knowing these things. And speaking of the city rapidly changing, the neighborhood we're focusing on today, Battery Park City, uh, really is a new invention. Um, Now, some people, to start, uh, they may conflate Battery Park City with Battery Park. Now, although they're adjacent, they're very different. And and Battery Park, of course, is not a neighborhood but a park at the southern tip of Manhattan. Yes, and I think now they're actually going back to the old name for it, which is the Battery. Names change all the time. Oh, wow. But Battery Park City is something that came about in the 1960s and 70s. And the land at which it's located didn't even exist 50 years ago. Exactly. You would have been swimming in most of Battery Park City in the 1960s. But the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, was going up. And uh, Nelson Rockefeller was the governor of the state. And somebody convinced him that all of the rock and soil being uh, brought up for the Twin Towers would be better used if instead of being carted off someplace, which was usually what happened, it was just put next door and created new landfill. So Battery Park City was 92 acres of brand new landfill, 20% of which came from the excavation from the World Trade Center. And I'm always fascinated how New York repeats itself. Uh, Many blocks were added to the east side and the west side of lower Manhattan in the Dutch and the British colonial periods uh, because they were excavating their basements for their two or three-story houses and just it was thrown into the water. And so nothing really ever changes in Manhattan, but you blink and everything's different. So I'm often interested in how history does repeat in so many forms. Well, speaking of landfill on in, on the west side, um, there's a little bit of inter- interesting history about the neighborhood that was you know, right across the street at West Street, uh, Little Syria, which uh, uh, was uh, there for at least uh, from 100 years ago. Um, in fact, I know there was a development plan, but uh, in digging the foundations, uh, uh, they discovered, this is I think back in, the, in, the, in maybe the 20s or the 30s, they discovered bulkheads, old ships, mm-hmm. um, and that landfill that was originally there before the, World Trade, before the World Trade Center was built, I think the island stopped at what ultimately became Greenwich Street, and then everything else beyond that became landfill, like in the la- la- latter part of the 18th century. Well, in the earliest days of European settlement, a Trinity Place, just down the hill from Trinity Church on Wall Street, was the edge of the river. And Pearl Street, whoops, I think we're losing our sound here for a second. Pearl Strat, which is now called Pearl Street on the east side, was the edge of the river. Uh, it was Will Rogers who said, by real estate, they're not making any more of it. But in New York, we are making more of it. Hmm. Now, when the World Trade Center went up, and actually I were, uh, I'm 59 years old, and I remember on the way to New Jersey growing up as a boy, I would see the World Trade going to visit our relatives in uh, New Jersey, and we would go up the West Side Highway through the Lincoln Tunnel. I'd always look up and see the towers going up. You know, it was it was in the 60s. Yeah. Um, there were things along the waterfront that were removed, like docks. And w- w- was that part of the the uh, the seafaring 
uh, economic tide of New York in, the, in those both, days? It both was that part and also part of the impetus when it left for doing new things with the waterfront. Uh, before the Second World War was over, the docks in, new, in Manhattan were extremely active. But after the war, uh, freight started being moved a boxcar at a time, a container at a time, not a banana at a time. So the freight traffic largely left the piers and, and uh, individuals were going distances via planes, so they weren't using the ocean liners as much. And so all along the edge of Manhattan, the waterfront began deteriorating. By the 1960s, the piers were on fire, and uh, different interesting projects were created in the city to do different things with the now available waterfront. Was anything interesting done with any of the piers uh, below uh, Chamber Street, or were they just sort of left to rot with nothing happening? That's where Battery Park City is now. That's right. It's start, <clears throat> the northern boundary of it is, is Chamber Street today. Um, not that I know of down there. Certainly in Chelsea, things were done with it. Mm. So the landfill started to be uh, uh, put in like right in the mid-60s when they were excavating for the World Trade Center? The original World Trade Center. That's right. The Twin Towers. The, the Twin Towers. What was the Battery Park City Authority, and why was it created? Well, it was a state authority whose purpose was uh, to run Battery Park City, and in fact, they still do that. Uh, so they had a plan. They had an overview idea for what should be done with the 92 uh, acres that would be Battery Park City, and they had some very interesting concepts at the time. Now, some say that it was a very 20th century idea to have a government involved and that these days government don't, doesn't do big projects like that. But the fact that there was kind of a uniform idea with uniform concepts really helps make uh, Battery Park City particularly appealing today. Mm. <clears throat> and to go back a little bit to, to how the land was created, um, uh, Something I've, I've read, and I had never heard this term before, a coffer dam. It wasn't just that they dumped the dirt in the river. They actually used these, these things to, to further uh, secure the land. What is a coffer dam? Well, I'm not sure what a coffer dam is, but I lived nearby when they were creating the landfill. I lived in Tribeca on the Hudson River at the time in the 70s. And what they did was sort of make a lake into the Hudson River, and then they would pump the water out of this lake, and that's how they created it. When was the creation of the land actually finished up? When did they actually put the finishing touches on it? Well, it would have been in the six, in the 70s, really. I remember when it was all one big beach. I mean, there's a beach street down there in Tribeca that actually is named for a guy named Beige, but it was a beach, and uh, I even have a recent picture of people sunbathing at that time. Um, Speaking of which, what, what's the origin of the name? We're not talking about Tribeca too much today. Well, that's for another show. But what's the, the origin of the, of, of the uh, name Beach Street? Did it have anything to do with a beach or was beach trees? Or? No, as I say, it was for a guy named Beish. No, I Beish. think it okay. might have yeah. been the, real, the uh, stock people, Beish. But all that area was Trinity Church's property. Uh, in um, 1803, 1804, Queen Anne of England gives Trinity 215 acres of Man Lower Manhattan real estate on the west side, and so that was theirs. When did building start in Battery Park City? When did they first start building residential buildings? Well, it's interesting because they had different ideas of what it was going to be, 
and the gateway A gateway plaza was the original uh, building that went up. It was, how are we doing with the sound? 1982 is when Gateway Plaza opened, and it was supposed it was a rental building, it's still double building, and it was supposed to bring middle class people. It was subsidized, uh, and it's now probably the least expensive residential space in Battery Park City. But then there was a financial crisis, and when the smoke cleared, uh, the concept of what Battery Park sh City should be had changed. Originally, the of it, which was going to be office buildings, was going to be at the southern end of it, but after they sort of repurposed the whole thing, it was uh, changed to be near the World Trade Center and the hub of transportation. Also, when the smoke cleared, the concept of the place was to be basically upper class largely. I mean, there was mixed, mixed uh, classes that were in, uh, brought in but it was changed so that the Battery Park City Authority that made a profit on this development was going to put a lot of their profit into rehabbing lower class housing elsewhere in the city. Mm. And uh, at one point, the wasn't control or the uh, um, operational control of Battery Park City changed from the city to the Battery Park City Authority? There was some issue about the fiscal crisis, I think, in the That's city in right. the late 70s. Yes, that changed quite a lot of things, including who's running our subways. Oh, wow. Okay, well, uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Stay tuned in just a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow, Follow Me Friday, Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're, We're your, your digital, digital connectors. connectors. Woo! Woo! What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York. I'm Jeff Goodman. 
And my first guest on today's show is the amazing Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Uh, Joyce, you have tours that are open to the public. You want to talk about them for a second? Well, most weekends of the year from March to mid-December, I have what I call a public tour, which means people don't have to reserve. I change the neighborhood that it's a tour of all the time. I have a schedule that tells people where to meet. Typically, the tours uh, go for about half a mile in two hours, and they're all different parts of the town. You just come if you're in the mood to come. And where can people find out about these tours? Well, my website gives you lots of information. It's Joyce Gold History Tours with an S dot com. And you also are on Instagram. I am on Instagram. That's a new thing for me. And that's also Joyce Gold History Tours. Exactly. Wow, okay. Um, and we like Joyce. We love Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce and I actually partner on a number of her tours for uh, an event series that I host as part of my real estate business. Let's uh, talk about the urban planning in the neighborhood. Battery Park City really seems like a well-designed neighborhood. It just didn't like grow and get and evolve over time. It, mm -hmm. it, it looks like it was really well thought out and really well designed. It really was. Battery Park City Authority uh, allowed different developers to create different parcels. So it doesn't have the uniform look that a lot of places that were designed basically at the same time have. And they had a lot of priorities. They wanted some subsidized housing to have uh, mixed, eth mixed ethnic groups, mixed classes in it, and that's, that's there. A third of it is open space. About 10% uh, or so is uh, our, our roads and that sort of thing. And um, there's just uh, two, four, apart, four office buildings that are there. So that's one thing. It's very open. There are parks, and they make great use of the incredible view of the Hudson River. And the water views are not just limited to the river. One of the things that I think is really beautiful about it, and I do business in Battery Park City, is that they actually have coves, which they had to design when they were mm -hmm. uh, filling in the land and not filling in those land. There's a south cove and a north cove. Exactly. And they don't want to fool people in uh, belying that we had a nautical pass. So the cove, of course, is where the ships used to come in. What were some of the influences behind the planning decisions that were made and, and, the, and how they ultimately impacted the neighborhood? Uh, well, were there urban do you know who some of the urban planners were who were involved uh, with some of the influences? I know Jane Jacobs was involved, mm -hmm. uh, very influential in, in, in the design of Battery Park City. Well, one thing about uh, the design, uh, which is a very Jane Jacobs kind of concept, is that there are a lot of short streets and they also, instead of turning their back on the rest of the city, which was an earlier concept of urban design, they have streets in Battery Park City running in, like Rector Street is both in Battery Park City and also in, continues into the financial district. They looked at some of the best of the past. For example, they look at, looked at the Esplanade in Battery Park City, and that influenced the design of some of the things they some of their benches that they call World's Fair benches because they were used at one of our World's Fair fairs in Flushing. And so it was a brand new concept or just an emerging concept, I would say, of making it look like the rest of the city just better. Hmm. Uh, for those of you who don't know who we uh, referenced Jane Jacobs, Jane J Jacobs was a local neighborhood activist 
who it is sometimes said single-handedly <laughs> stopped Robert Moses from building what would have been an awful highway that would have broken up the village in lots of downtown neighborhoods just to facilitate uh, uh, the, the byways of the automobile. That's right. In 1962, she came out with a very important book called The Death and Life of American Cities with all new concepts. Prior to that, the idea was <laughs> that it was good for people to put a tower in a plaza, but you couldn't really keep an eye out on your kids. And one of the main ideas that Jane Jacobs offered Crawford was to uh, have eyes on the street and have the butcher and the baker and keeping the place safe by looking out. Yeah. It's brand new. And there's an organization called the Municipal Arts Society that is dedicated to the preservation of all things that are beautiful in New York, and they honored Jane with uh, a celebration in May and some things, some things called Jane's Walks. Um, wasn't Harry Helmsley one of the developers involved in, uh, in well, Battery Park City? He was involved in a, in a lot of different things, and I'm sure he uh, made his mark. And another uh, developer who was involved was the Related uh, Companies, which is the main developer in the brand-new Hudson Yard. So they are, that's a carryover from what was there. But, you know, the, there is a difference that uh, seems to be uh, to exist between Hudson Yards and Battery Park City. Battery Park City looks like it was designed more on a human scale with more public space. Mm -hmm. I mean, Hudson Yards in some ways is quite spectacular, but doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't to me, seem to command the human element and, and, and lay out spaces that people can just feel like they, they can exist and live. There are all these spaces, but they're between these huge, tall buildings. And uh, it's a very, very different feel from, from Battery Park City. That's a very good point. Battery Park City, the idea more was to blend in and make an interesting whole, whereas there's a lot of branding going on in the Hudson Yards, and it's to stand out, not to blend in at all. So the people who designed Battery Park City specifically wanted a third of the land to be just set aside for parks. Mm -hmm. What are some of the interesting parks in Battery Park City? Well, there's the Rector Street Park, and they all have uh, things in them that makes, if you live there, you will know that that's your neighborhood and not the one up the street, so that there's different artwork that is quite striking that's different in these different parks. Teardrop Park is, is mm. rather unique. It's, uh, uh, <clears throat> it's this beautiful green space in the middle, but um, uh, it's not surrounded on all sides by roads. On, the, on a couple of the sides, actually, uh, apartment buildings uh, go right up against it, creating a, exactly. a non-urban feel to it. Yeah, there are four apartment buildings that face it, but as they say, it wasn't just sort of an added attraction there. It was sort of the point, in a way, of the four apartment houses. And it reminds you of some deep woods in the Catskills or maybe even the Adirondacks because the name is a very interesting name. The Hudson River is over 300 miles long, and it starts at one of the most beautifully named places in the Adirondacks that you can imagine something being named Lake Tear of the Cloud, and that's why they call it Teardrop Park. Uh, there's a wall with an opening that you walk through. There are places where water spurts out in the winter so that it can freeze and make an interesting effect. It's sort of, they s describe it as a place for contemplation rather than, say, playing baseball, although there is a very, very popular slide that young kids just love. You come right down into a whole field of sand. And isn't there like a ca almost a cave there, too? You can go inside some structure that has the feeling of a cave. That's right, yeah. It's probably the only lower ca cave in lower Manhattan, aside from <laughs> the subways. Um, 
when was the Hunger Memorial built? Well, it came up just after 9-11. It was uh, started just before 9-11 in 2001, never imagining that this memorial to the over a million Irish people who died in what is often called the potato famine or starvation of the 1840s, and a million people left. And they never thought that one day they would be uh, facing the memorial for Ground Zero. What was on that space before it became the Hunger? Was, was it just an open space, an open park? I think it was. I don't really remember. But Brian Tall was the uh, was the designer of it, and his partner had a family who had a house that was in the potato famine uh, in Ireland, and stone by stone, they brought it over. It doesn't have a roof because you couldn't even get thin soup given out by the government if you had a roof on your house so that the Irish people, desperate to survive, were removing roofs. And there's some wonderful quotations there. And it's really such a wonderful reminder for many other kinds of oppression, as well as the terrible things that happened in Ireland, where uh, Trevelyan, who was the minister in um, in England involved, uh, sort of running the Irish situation, was blaming the Irish for not living right and for expecting handouts when people were dying and he really couldn't have cared less. Mm. For those of you who haven't visited the Hunger Memorial and Teardrop Park, there, the Hunger Memorial is quite moving. It's also very unlike any other thing in New York. Uh, you go up a ramp and uh, there's flora that, that, that's native to, I think, the west coast of Ireland. And you almost don't, you only know you're in New York because of the skyline. But when you're up there, uh, the plants are different. The, the way the road is, the, the walkway is constructed is very different. It really takes you to a different place. Yes, it does. Uh, and we also have the Museum of Jewish Heritage That's in right. Battery Park City. How is it that uh, that wound up there, that that ended up being built in the neighborhood? Well, part of the design aspect was that there should be a lot of things for the public. That was Battery Park City's uh, mandate. And so the Irish Memorial would be there, the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living museum of the Holocaust would be there, uh, a wonderful poetry library, probably the best in the country devoted to poetry, partly because poets uh, like Elizabeth Cray and Stanley Kunix helped design it. And uh, so there is in four, those four very high-toned buildings that face the uh, the Teardrop Park, they all have public bathrooms, which you don't usually get in $20 million condos per condo, but there are public bathrooms there. There are two grade schools in Battery Park City. Stuyvesant High School is there as well. So a lot of public amenities, and that would include the museum. The Museum of Jewish Heritage in Battery Park City also is uh, New York's Holocaust Museum. Mm-hmm. Too. They have a, uh... It is, and one of the most moving things about it to me is that it faces Ellis Island, and for six million people who didn't come to Ellis Island, they died in the Holocaust. A mm. uh, little plug for the museum, there's uh, an exhibition that's starting, it's called Auschwitz, not long ago and not far away. And um, not that this brings anything special to a neighborhood quality, but uh, I passed by the other day, uh, and they actually have uh, a boxcar sitting out front on rails, and it, 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 it's uh, very, very... <laughs> weird and moving to walk by that thing right in front of the museum. 
Um, and there's also a local branch of the New York Public Library. Anything that's yes. unique about that branch of the library in Battery Park City? Well, I think Goldman Sachs, which uh, moved their corporate headquarters to the tune of $2.4 billion into Battery Park City after 9-11, I believe they financed that public library. Oh. <clears throat> Very much in the Carnegie tradition, who paid for most of our original branch libraries. And it's actually a really unusual place. It has. It's not typical for a library. It's... Uh, uh, in uh, full disclosure, uh, I was on a wonderful tour that Joyce gave of Battery Park City on a very hot day. Every, uh, there was a lot of relief in the park, in Teardrop Park, and also in the library. And another thing that's wonderful outside the library is one of the fabulous statues by the great Tom Otterness, which are both, uh, which talk about little people overthrowing big people and money and greed and just wonderful creative things in one of his statues. And he's one of the great sculptors of America these days. Uh, is in front of that library. Very mm. playful as well as being very political. Well, Joyce, thank you so much for coming back on the show and talking about yet another neighborhood that you know so much about and illuminate for us. Um, before we take a break, just a little quick plug. Uh, I do work in Battery Park City, and as it so happens, this is my first show where I have a listing in Battery Park City. It's a wonderful two-bedroom, two-bath at the Hudson View West Building. It's a little over 1,150 square feet, and the price is just under $1,000 uh, a square foot. And it's newly renovated, and it's a beautiful place to live on a corner with tons of light. If you're interested in seeing it or finding out more about it, you can reach me at 646-306-4761. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to be joined by an extraordinary second guest on Rediscovering New York. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Maiman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And the law offices of Thomas Siaka. Tom specializes in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. He and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our shows about neighborhoods and the myriad textures of New York. Uh, even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not is about the business of real estate, even though I may give myself an occasional plug for a property I'm working on. But there is really good show on real estate. Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco. It airs on Tuesday mornings live at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com. 
you can like Rediscovering New York on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram. Uh, my handle is Jeff Goodman NYC. Original, I know. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.nyc. Well, we have a very, very special guest on the second segment of Rediscovering New York in our episode of Battery Park City. And uh, Bob is so accomplished, uh, his resume is going to be a little bit longer than usual. Uh, Bob Giraldi is an iconic director of TV commercials, music videos, short and feature films, and he has a career spanning 50 years. Bob was creative director at the legendary Young and Rubicom. Full disclosure, I worked in the media side of advertising once upon a time. Uh, and caught up in the middle of the early advertising creative revolution, he spent over 10 years on Madison Avenue. Uh, he earned the distinction of being named as one of the 101 stars behind 100 years of advertising. And in 2014, Bob was the first commercial director ever to be elected to the Advertising Hall of Fame. Bob has produced and directed over 4,000 visual marketing and advertising pieces. Uh, as one of the few film directors to be honored with the induction into the New York Art Directors Hall of Fame, uh, his work resides in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art, Bob directed one of the longest advertising campaigns in history, Taste Great, Less Filling. Anyone remember the brand that was for? That was for Miller Lite. He also directed the original Pepsi campaigns featuring Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. In the early 90s, Bob threw his hat into the New York restaurant ring, opening JoJo with his then-partner, Phil Suarez. Soon, Bob became part of the team that created the foundation for a food dynasty that is unparalleled. He became a partner in various eateries, such as Jean-Georges, the New York Times four-star restaurant with an Asian fusion sensation, Vong, a forerunner of modern Thai cuisine in New York, and Prime, the venerable steakhouse at the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas. Gigino Trattoria opened its doors in August of 1994 in Tribeca. Uh, owners once again, Giraldi and Suarez, along with executive chef Luigi Celentano, and Bob also started Gigino at Wagner Park, which is the subject of part of our talk today. Uh, in 1995, Bob and executive producer Patty Greerney created the original website StarChefs.com, featuring celebrity chefs and cookbook authors. StarChefs.com continues to be the foremost website used by professionals and food aficionados. Bob's also on the faculty of the School of Visual Arts for over 30 years, and he's currently chair of SVA's Master's in Directing grad program. Bob, what accomplishments, and welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. A um, little bit of your personal history. Are you from New York originally? No. A place called Patterson, New Jersey. Ah. When did you arrive in New York? Um, I, went to, <laughs> I went to college at Pratt Institute on a basketball and baseball scholarship, but don't, let's not tell anybody. Huh. Um, and I started on my uh, career in the art world or as it a an ad guy in those days and then transisted into uh, film and video and, and the digital revolution. Um, but I came over uh, across the bridge and uh, went to uh, went to college in, uh, in Brooklyn and uh, have never left New York. So Pratt had a basketball and a baseball team? I didn't know that about Pratt. It was actually quite good. Ah. Um, we played some heavy competition. It was a. I was lucky. Uh, luck has followed me for a long time. I was. It was right in the middle of when Pratt said, "You know what? We need stronger athletes in this school. So let's start uh, 
becoming serious about this, and they went out and got a coach from Rhode Island State, and he came to, to Brooklyn, and he started giving scholarships, and I was a recipient of both baseball and basketball, and it was, and after I left, I think it lasted for two more years, and then they stopped, went back to being artists. Oh. Did you like basketball or baseball better? Did you, did you like both of them equally? I was equally uh, average at both, um, but I liked. Uh, I was a baseball catcher, and you you know catching was my personality because you sort of run the you know the the defense, and uh, so I enjoyed that. Hmm. Did you first go into directing film, or did you first go into the advertising industry? What was your? I went to work at Young and Rubicam. Um, I guess I'm one of the original Mad Men, um, that whole collection of crazies that um, the show sort of depicts wrongly. We never walked around with drinks in our hands. Um, <laughs> just at lunchtime. Just at lunchtime. Um, but I, uh, I uh, grew up in the ranks of Young and Rubicam, and um, then we became a, there started on Madison Avenue a creative revolution and I was caught up in that, and Doyle Dane Burnback, Bill Burnback was sort of a, a leader and a, a hero, and Steve Frankfurt and all those names that that sort of changed the course of creative history, and I just got caught up in it and, and uh, loved it so much that I became very serious about it, and then all of a sudden, I started directing my own, television came in, and I started directing my own television commercials. And I don't know how that happened, but it happened. And from that point on, I became a, a commercial and film director. And then music videos came along and, 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 you know, motion pictures came along and, you know, and short films comes along and education comes along. And before you know it, you know, there's a lifetime. Not just a lifetime, but 4,000 advertising and visual marketing pieces. That's astounding. That's a huge number. At like the output, uh, just I, I can't even fathom it. How'd... Well, it's a lot of some <laughs> some of it's good work, a lot of it's fibbing and and showing off and you know and pounding your chest. The advertising business has that way of you know of making more than it of something than it should. Hmm. Well, before we get to uh, your restaurant tour history, uh, I would like to to. to talk a little bit more about uh, your your direction. You've known some very interesting personalities in your work in terms of commercials and other things that you've directed. I have. Okay. <laughs> is, there, is there a question? Well, no, I'd like to. <laughs> you you want to, you, uh, like, you know, you Bob know, and his friends. Well, you yeah. know, uh, uh, for the light beer Miller campaign, obviously, uh, my athletic heroes being an ex-jock, and there I was faced with directing a bunch of uh, guys that didn't have much talent as actors, but sure could have a lot of fun, you know. Topped by Bob Euchre, who was probably the world's funniest man, and uh, Rodney Dangerfield, who could never get over the fact that Bob was funnier than he was, you know. And Billy Martin, and you know John Madden, and Bubba Smith, and and, it, and it, Tommy Heinz, and it goes on and on and on. And uh, it was just a an incredible time for me because there I was each week working with some hero that I had watched on television, you know, create incredible, you know, sports history. And there they were now and me trying to get them to be able to say something funny or convincing or even believable. Um, and then I um, started, I guess it 
was the time when music videos came to America, and I uh, was lucky enough to meet Michael Jackson, and my very first video was one that turned me on to a lot of others and my history and you know my is sort of wrapped up around the videos that I did with Michael and uh, and Lionel and Paul McCartney and all and and uh, and then that stopped and we go on to new things and we did a few feature films and and now I'm as happy as you can possibly be uh, teaching young people at the School of Visual Arts how to direct and uh, you know wow. so education usually follows um, especially when you get older so even though you're now in the restaurant business you still take that element of your creativity and to 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 teach and to empower people to to go into that that business for, and to for an artist to teach to empower is really um essence of accomplishment i mean that's really what is you know, I learn every single day from young people that I'm supposed to teach, you know, and, and it's just, you know, everybody says that, but so few of us really, you know, I do it and have done it for a long time. I, I just find being able to inspire young people to make, to direct and make film that's convincing and, and unique and interesting, a lot of very average stuff, but Every class, three, four, five people just jump out and then you say to yourself, there goes some young woman or young man, not even from this country, from any, from the world, that's going to be a marvelous filmmaker one day. How long have you been working with the School of Visual Arts for? A uh, long time. I've taught for a long time, um, I know 30, 40 years there. Um, but I now run, I chair the... Uh, the uh, directing program, the grad program in directing. And uh, it just is, it's so satisfying that, you know, I don't have to, you know, once you stop selling soap, uh, you know, or you get out of the music business, the hip hop business, you know, I just, uh, my days are uh, a lot calmer, but but every bit is award rewarding. Mm. Uh, calmer uh, working with young people in the visual arts, but one thing I can't imagine is that calming is working uh, full-time in the restaurant industry, which is the next thing I want to talk to you about. Um, how did you get involved in, you know, given given your art history, given your, your, your history of video production, how did you get involved in the restaurant business? I'm not really sure that... Um, I think it goes back to when... My partner, Phil Suarez, and I looked at each other one day and said, we'd love to eat. That's We'd love to party. And those were the year, the 80s when everybody was partying. And uh, why don't we try something that we've not done before and uh, let's try to find a chef. And um, we traveled to uh, Positano, Italy, and uh, with our wives. And on the Amalfi Coast. For those on the Amalfi Coast. And we vacationed. And we ate uh, around and met and talked and convinced a particular chef, Luigi Cialentano, to come back to New York with us. And we're not, I'm not quite sure how he communicated because none of us spoke Italian. Um, but Probably he, with your hands a lot. With our hands and with money. And he got on the plane and he came with us and we put him, you know, we got him a job at uh, Tre Scalini, up, which was a famous Italian restaurant uptown at, uh, at the time. And um, before you know it, 
Luigi became a New Yorker, and we started uh, Gigino downtown, and uh, it's been going incredible ever since. And with that success, uh, my partner Suarez met Jean George, and they became friendly. And next on the horizon was you know the beginning of the Jean George restaurants, which everybody or anybody who's a New Yorker knows, you know the success and the brilliance and genius of Jean George. Um, and others followed, and then I went my way, they went their way. I did other restaurants. They obviously are still doing restaurants. One now opening down um, downtown, in, uh, uh, I think, in Battery uh, Park City. Um, so it's just, uh, it's been a great run. It is a insane business. Nuts. It's crazy for anybody to want to be in it, especially today with all the rules and permits and laws and labor issues and whatever, but it's still somehow when you when you make something and bring it to a table and people enjoy it, there's a kind of satisfaction attached to it as well. That's really quite wonderful. Hmm. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Bob more about his Gigino restaurant in Tribeca briefly, but then also about the one in Wagner Park in Battery Park City. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Yes, I do. I end it indeed. Right. We're back. We're back with Bob Giraldo, uh, famed Giraldi. Giraldi, I'm sorry, Bob. I'm that's sorry. The, that's the Spanish version. Giraldi. Here He's we go. Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I can't believe I made that mistake. I'm looking right at your name on my sheet. Anyway, Bob, I'm sorry. We're back with Bob Giraldi, famed film and creative director, and now restaurateur. Um, how many restaurants have you owned? In your restaurant career? I think at the peak, there was 11. I was uh, part owner of. 
And when did you open the original Gigino Trotteri in Tribeca? I think it was 1994 and then Wagner Park, 1999. What had you decide to open a restaurant in Battery Park, the southern part of Battery Park City, having been oh, had one successfully in Tribeca? Uh, well, and, some, uh, and and the same name and the same cuisine. Uh, the real estate, uh, the real estate, the restaurant business is so much a real estate business. It, its success is really dependent so much on real estate. And when the offer came along that there was space downtown on the water, at Wagner Park, uh, and my uh, my uh, partner then Phil Suarez had a relationship with some people from the city and they asked him and said Phil you know you guys are, are starting to grow you're starting to get a name you've got a ni- nice product would you be interested in doing something Italian and small and that small turned out to be medium and medium turned out to be large and before you know it we enjoyed immense success and still have it to this day and it's uh it's really quite a beautiful place to enjoy it's really really very much like italy like sitting and eating and dining in italy yes i've dined there it's it's, there are actually two dining spaces one that's a little more outside it's very intimate but also very beautiful the windows are large you just look right out over the harbor and it's a it's also a, a quiet part of the esplanade there don't seem to be a lot of people who who walk by the restaurant well, it's hard to walk by the restaurant, although they, the bikers do go by it. Uh, the beauty, uh, I remember my, our daughter, Patty, and uh, our and my daughter, Sienna, uh, ages three to five, used to play on that grassy knoll right opposite where all the tables are set out, facing the, the harbor, the Hudson and uh, Statue of Liberty. And they would, the city would bring out toys, throw them there, and let the kids play for a couple hours and then come and collect them and, mm. you know, and every day do that. It was really, it was very joyful. And then 2001 came and life changed. Um, it's still a very beautiful spot. And we love it, and it's busier than ever, but it'll always, for me, have that that feeling and that moment of, rec- you know, of realization that the world is changing. Were you down at Wagner Park on, on 9 I was in Tribeca uh, in my loft looking out over the uh, downtown from Broadway about seven blocks mm-hmm. uh, away, watching both towers uh, come down, and... Uh, and our restaurant, the Trattoria, uh, didn't get uh, mauled quite like uh, the one in uh, Battery City did at Wagner Park. Uh, it just uh, it shut us down for a long time, as it did so many people that you know shut down homes, shut down everything, businesses, everything and everybody. And um, I remember the one of the nice memories I have of Battery Park City and Tribeca and downtown is the effort by so many people. Uh, like, I want to remember somebody who's who's the late Liz Berger, for instance, who ran the Downtown Alliance. It was just a, a group of people that tried everything within their power to bring it back, not to let Tribeca and downtown and Battery Park City just vanish, you know, into the newspaper columns. Um, and she did an incredible job, and we all you know, worked hard to clean it up, bring it back, you know, with a point of view that said, like so many times we we try to, um, you can't bully us. We're not going to, we're, we're, we're back there. We're back. You know? 
how long after 9-11 did it take to open? A uh, couple years. A couple of years. Yeah, oh, yeah, a couple of years. And uh, uh, as most businesses were, as you know, the restaurant is is right south of the Jewish Heritage Museum um, and is in, in a, situated in a very beautiful uh, part of the, uh, you know, the harbor. Uh, by the way, what's the website for Jijino at Wagner Park, in case someone wants to go on online? www.jijino at wagnerpark.com. Uh, and it is really a beautiful place uh, to eat, and the food is delicious, Italian being my favorite, uh, also being uh, half Italian-American. Um, what for you is special about the vibe of Battery Park City? What, what is it that you like about the neighborhood? Well, it's downtown, and for so long especially in the Mad Men era, Madison Avenue and Uptown was where, what people thought of when they thought of New York City, the John Lindsay years and all of, you know. Um, but then all of a sudden the transition became reality and downtown sort of was the place to go and it still remains that. Um, on any given day, the stroller wars in Battery Park City are, are you know, are furious and you totally unique. Uh, it's very family. Um, Has it always been that way since you opened up Gigino, or has it changed? It's always or? it's it started to get more and more and more and more family. It was before that quite a lot about stars living in secluded lofts up high. Nobody knew. Nobody knew where they were. But all, but now it's just it's people, you know. And some people can afford it. Some people can't. Yes, it's expensive, but it's not. You know, there are streets and there are enclaves and there are places. In fact, I remember fondly, um, you know, I my mother, I brought my mother to live her final years uh, to a retirement home and uh, right off of uh, uh, Chambers and the West Side Highway. And it's just, uh, you know, it's just, it holds so many memories for us in so many different ways, so many different emotions that, uh, you know, it's, uh, yesterday I went uptown to, uh, to have, had to go uptown to do something um, at a sound studio, and I said, boy, I, I started to get itch. I started to get nervous. I had to go back downtown immediately. Mm. Well, one of the great things about Battery Park City is that it's downtown and close to everything, but it really is different. You cross the West Side Highway, and it's a different community. It's really is. Absolutely. It's more quiet. Uh, the, the, the roads are wider. There are trees. It, it, it's almost, I don't want to use the word suburb, but it, 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 it has a, it has elements of a suburban feel, not, not as urban. As, as only New York can. Uh, is there anything that you struggle with now having a business in Battery Park City? Anything that you wish might be different about the neighborhood? Um, no. No, I mean, uh, yes, of course. Uh, but no, I mean, I've, I think the people have welcomed us and are, 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 are marvelous, and we obviously get a lot of, uh, you know, um, high-profile people. It's a really quite a lovely place to dine, and we get a lot of weddings. We get catering. We get, you know, it's it just lends itself to that. Um, no, I, there's nothing. I have a marvelous partner and the chef who works very hard to keep bringing unique Italian food, which is not easy because Italian food is so repetitive and so much a part of New York's culture, and everybody has it in every neighborhood. But we try to do it as unique as possible. To keep, he tries to keep it as uh, as much from Positano and Amalfi as possible. So no, I 
Uh, is uh, it still Luigi? Is Luigi still there? Luigi. Ah. This, the Luigi. <laughs> Do you, in, in the couple of seconds we have left, is there any uh, favorite dish you like out of risk of... Uh, Il Padrino is beets, scarol, anchovies. It's just, uh, it's quite a marvelous concoction, uh, only in the, from the Amalfi Coast, and only as Luigi could make it. Well, the next time I'm in Gigino at Wagner Prague, I'm going to have to try it. Uh, Bob, thank you so much. Uh, we've been speaking with Bob Giraldi, one of the owners of Gigino at Wagner Park, a really wonderful and lovely Italian restaurant right at the southern part of Battery Park City in Wagner Park. Uh, thanks again for tuning in to Rediscovering New York. We've been speaking about Battery Park City today. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on the show's mailing list, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, uh, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. Uh, and you can also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting the show, I'm a real estate agent at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach me at 646-306-4761 or, of course, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Chris Gutierrez. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Thiergartner, coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc. And at 9 p.m., Beyond Potential, Living Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Talking the best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? 
I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.